0: You're listening to an Anna Ministries podcast. All right, it's time to start our what's new. What can we learn about exploration from Starfield? Why do we tell horror stories to each other? Is there such a thing as being too over the top, even for an anime? And what can we learn from the life of Will Wheaton? We're going to be discussing all these things and more today on Systematic Ecology. We are the priests of the geeks. I'm going to stop the music from playing again, and there we go. I'm your host, Christian Ashley. And I am of course joined by my co-host here, my friend Kevin Schaefer. How are you doing, Kevin? Christian, I'm great. How about you? I'm okay, man. It's an excellent. We were talking before. This is just a lazy Monday for me. I'm ready to get into stuff. We're going to have a ton of fun here. So we've got some really quality, great, great quality stuff to discuss. So. As we do, when this time comes around, we're going to start with our lightning round. And I'm, of course, going to be starting with Ultraman Blazar, which I have been enjoying immensely. It is not reinventing the wheel, as it were, but it is also like playing with the old ultra tropes. Like, I don't know how, f- let me ask how familiar are you with Ultraman before we actually get into that for the lightning ramp part?
1: So I know some of the basics, I really haven't done it, like a deep dive, but it's been an interesting resurgence for that IP in the past few years. Like, like, I mean, I feel like before the last, like, I don't know, um, three or four years, most Ultraman fans were uh, like from an older generation. And, you know, it was this kind of like, um, m- like other movies or, uh, stories that people grew up in, like the Godzilla era. And then it's had an interesting resurgence in the past few years and coming into comics and stuff. So I don't really have a deep connection, but I have friends who do. And I think it's a really cool um, universe. And so I'm interested. I, I'm flipping to you. Like, what is your background with Ultraman?
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I was raised on Ultraman, like with many things, by my dad. Uh, He's the one who introduced me to comics and all the movies and almost everything I've watched that wasn't like Disney. That was more my mom. And for Ultraman, I was Godzilla guy first, watched all the classic movies there, got into the ones from the 90s as I was growing up, and he got me to Ultraman 2. Love this show. Like, it's everything that appeals to that little child inside of me. It's like, hey, there's a guy in a kooky suit wrestling with a guy in another kooky suit, and you're just going to have fun. Like, sometimes there's a plot, and that's good. But for No, it doesn't get any better than that. Not to focus too much on this, because this is a lightning round. Yeah, it's one of those things where I I think we're getting some characterization for the Ultra himself this time. Not to say there's never been some before in past Ultra series. We're dealing with a a franchise that's been here for almost uh, beyond 50 years, actually. Like, we're getting to see, like, he may be the last of his kind. In this uh, alternate reality we're in, like uh, him dealing with some PTSD as well. Like uh, hanging out with our host for the season, who is Genta, the leader of our monster fighting squad. And oh, is it Scarred? I think. And the conflict the two of them had, like uh, one trying to be a father, which is also th- something I don't remember has happened before with our protag, who is actually you know a thirty-year-old man who has a wife and a kid. I'm loving how they're changing that up. Ultraman Blazar has been really great, but I know even though we did have a discussion last week with James, TJ, and Will. Uh, Kevin, we are both going to talk about our feelings on Ahsoka real quick for our part of the lightning round. Kevin, go ahead, take it away. I
1: will try to keep this brief because I could easily do a whole episode on this. But um, So (laughs) I'll just go ahead and say, well, I have an Ahsoka keychain on my wheelchair, and I got to meet Ashley Eckstein uh, at GalaxyCon last year, one of my all-time favorite characters. And um, I'll just say I'm loving the show. Uh, at the time recording last week's episode um, is just one of the best pieces of Star Wars media. I'd say not just in the Disney area, but of all time, I'll put on both there. Um, It's not just nostalgic, but it adds so much depth to her story, to her relationship with Anakin opening up more of the world between worlds, um, which if you've seen rebels, you know what that is. And I, yeah, I just like, able being that whole scene and sequences of bringing events and images from the Clone Wars show to live action was done just flawlessly um and I have to give a special shout out to the actor who plays young Ahsoka here um I believe her name is Ariana Greenblatt if I'm pronouncing that correctly so she's only like I mean she's like a teenager and she's already been in three of the biggest like Franchises and of all because she was Young Gamora in Infinity War. Um, mm-hmm. She plays a significant role in the Barbie movie, and then now she's in this. So I'm like, she's having quite the career already at a young age, and um, could not have been a better casted here. But um, I'm loving Ahsoka. I could go again, way more in depth here, but um, but it, it's just one of those. If you're a fan of Clone Wars and Rebels and um, the prequel era, it's just a treat, and it really expands upon the story. Uh, I'm especially interested in seeing how Ahsoka and Sabine's relationship evolves. And yeah, I just really love last week's episode.
0: Very nice. Yeah. To keep this short, like, uh, cause there's so much I want to say, but we also oh, did yes. have the whole episode dedicated to it. Oh yeah. So uh, to keep it short, I'm really enjoying it. I'm liking what they're doing. That last episode was spectacular. The transition mm-hmm. between Anakin as Anakin and Anakin as Vader is one of the best shots I've ever seen for star wars i love that so much like giving ahsoka that bit of oh you forget the fact she's like 14 dealing with an interstellar war which is not what she's supposed to be doing but because of the circumstances in the galaxy she is now on the battlefield as a young adult love that scene uh i I can't wait to see where they're going i have a very bad feeling this is going to end up being our empire strikes back of the television stuff in that I, I imagine they're gonna reunite with Ezra, but at the cost of letting Thrawn get to regular space to take over the Empire. I, I'm sure that's not the the boldest theory anyone's ever made, but that's where I think we're at.
1: Oh, I agree. I think, I mean, based on the pacing, I don't think we're gonna get a nicely like tied up narrative by the end of the season. It will leave a lot. And I mean, if for your listeners who don't already know. Uh, Dave Filoni is still, set. I mean, I know the strikes are going on and everything, but his the last big announcement he, they had was he's going to write and direct a feature length movie that will sort of tie in all the elements of like Clone Wars, Rebels, Mandalorian, Ahsoka. So I think that'll be like his heir to the empire. And this is very much the setup for that. So absolutely, I think it's going to be a, like, we're going to get to see Thrawn, we're going to see Ezra, but it's not going to be all wrapped up by the end of the season. I, and I don't know if they're going to, save the rest of the story for that movie, or if we'll do another season of of Ahsoka, I'm not sure exactly how it all play out. Um, But yes, I think it is gonna be, uh, there's gonna be some cliffhangers, there's gonna be some, you know, catastrophic results for the galaxy, but I'm very invested and excited to see where it'll go.
0: Very much so. All right, well, do you have anything you'd like to add to the lightning round before we head into our episode proper?
1: I'm good, I think I wanna go into our topic. I'm interested in um, the ones you have listed here too.
0: Okay, well, let's get into those. We'll start with my first one. That would be Starfield, which has been the recent Bethesda game that has uh, just come out within the past couple of days. I'm a big Bethesda guy. Uh, I got my start with uh, Fallout 3 and Oblivion. Uh, I know other people, that's sacrilege, but you know what? That's how I ended up there. And I'm loving it. It's not the most engaging game just yet. It's basic premise. Humanity has gone to the stars. We've populated different planets. We found alien life yet. we found like what might be traces of them. And there's this whole group that you find yourself a part of. You unearth an artifact as a miner on this one planet that seems to be tied to an alien race. And now you're working with them. They're called Constellation and their job is they're kind of like freelance explorers. They have that big idealistic goal of like, we've got to go out there and explore and see what else is out there. Then you've got, you know, your basic, you know, typical kind of United Nations like government here. You've got your more, not anarchist, but more free that it's free star collective is their name. They're like more free bending the rules kind of way. And you've also got your crimson fleet, which is a bunch of pirates, you got spacers who are a bunch of crazy people out there. Not quite Reavers uh, because they still have their thoughts intact, you know, from Firefly. So and it's all that working together. I just got through the mission. Heavy spoilers, by the way, for anyone out there, where you lose one of your companions in uh, from Constellation as you're attacked by the alien race that, or it seems to me, they're either the alien race who made them, I don't know yet for sure, or there are other alien races who found it have kind of like ascended almost to a higher plane of existence, but not totally. And now they don't want you to do the same because they don't think hum- humanity is ready. That's what I think is happening. I'm totally enjoying it. Do you have any experience with Starfield at all, Kevin? I don't, I'm not really a gamer as much as like, I um, I played
1: like back in the day. And then I, I know there are a lot of accessibility tools for gaming now, but for a while there wasn't as much. And so I kind of drifted off, but I still have friends who are very much like huge big-time big, big gamers. And so um, this is not one pr- pr- property I'm as familiar with, but nonetheless, it sounds like, I mean, the kind of cosmic um, sci-fi that I would enjoy nonetheless. And so I enjoy your descriptions here. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This is a brand new IP from Bethesda as opposed to Elder Scrolls and fallout and all that. Yeah. So it seems to be something they want to make more games out of, which kills me as a player, because that means we're going to wait even longer for elder Scrolls six and even longer for fallout five. And I hate how much game development takes so much longer these days, but I'd prefer that to, you know artists and writers and developers and designers having to work you know 80 100 hour weeks right as it's been in the past like wh- whatever it takes to have them have a stable working relationship to get the game polished and ready on their time mm. i'm fine with that i just i'm very impatient
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah you want i mean you get well just because of the quality of stuff today you like want it more and more right away uh so that's yeah understandable. but um But no, this, I mean, I love the aesthetic here of the cover and like, are there, so as far as story-wise and just thematically, what are some of the big takeaways for you um, for playing this?
0: Uh, One of them that I've found, like um, Todd Howard said, one of the creators of Bethesda uh, is that this is kind of a NASA punk kind of game. So not a cyberpunk or, you know, steampunk or anything like that, like, inspired by that goal of exploration going out there finding more what is our place in the whole of reality that's actually kind of leans into one of my questions i was going to ask ask is that no is there any point in exploring the stars when we have so much to wrestle with on earth and i say that in light of the game is that earth itself at this point no one lives there Mm -hmm. because there was a great disaster that kind of it was either shifted to magnetic poles or something like that so like earth is a barren wasteland Uh so that that's in their story but like right now like you have detractors saying like why should we be going out there when there's so much we have to deal with here what is what are your thoughts on that matter
1: It's a good question i mean i think like I, there's two ways to look at that as far as on an individual basis and just thinking about you know cosmic questions and bigger picture outside i think it actually helps us understand our own humanity better and like when we look at our place in the universe um there is i get what you're saying about the whole like the chapter is saying like why are governments pouring resources into that when there's so much here on earth and i think there is some legitimacy to um that statement because like there is you know we do want to take care of um problems here but as far as like no matter how bad things get here i think it is important that we still have that scientific um curiosity and that's so intrinsic to spiritual that makes sense like because you know, thinking about these big questions of like where we are and where we fall in the universe. It seems superfluous when you're just trying to get through day-to-day stuff, but I think it actually helps you understand humanity's place in things and helps you become more empathetic. Um, And just like keeping that wonder alive and that curiosity, I think is important.
0: Yeah. Well said. I mean, there are certainly plenty of things that could be solved. Well, or at least done as worked on as best as possible here. Cause we're never going to get rid of poverty. We're never going to get rid of homelessness or sickness or death or anything like that. But that doesn't mean we don't fight against it. That doesn't mean right. we don't seek to help the people suffering under drug abuse or what have you, or, you know, under, you know, in the midst of sexual trafficking or something like that. But at that same time, like we have been gifted by God with a wondrous planet we got to protect. And at the same time, we're not just here. Uh-huh. there's so much more out there. So uh-huh. what's the balance between the two? I don't know. I'm not the one handling uh-huh. the budget, but still like we can't deny the fact that we are not just alone, even forgetting the fact of aliens possibly existing. Like this one planet is not all there is. Uh-huh. God made more than just that for us to see and view. And I think, you know, depending on however things go in the end, like he may want us to go out there uh-huh. and see what else he has to offer us. Uh and I'm all behind that. Well, at the same time, I don't want to neglect the people who are suffering. So like where's the balance? Like, I don't have that answer, but there's gotta be a way to balance the two where you're not leaving the people on earth completely behind while also exploring the stars. And then you get the whole thing of like, well, we're not a united planet. So who gets to control what out there? Yeah. It's, it's not going to be easy. It's a very idealistic kind of tone of you, very Star Trek of like, well, we eventually we all got together and then we went out there and, you know, Uh know, where no man had gone before. And that's I love that so much. And I think I'm at that part of the story here for Starfield where. That idealism is being punished. To an extent, Mm -hmm. because you Uh didn't you went too far, it's kind of like that almost not quite a Jurassic Park of. uh, oh, what's the quote? Uh, you didn't bother to think if you should, or I, I butchered the quote. Yeah, something me. like that. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, oh, well, we're unchecked because we kept exploring exploring without thinking of the consequences. But at that same time, it's good to be exploring. Right.
1: And I think, so again, I really the, reason I say, yeah, cool. the reason I say, yeah, and the reason I say, like, makes you more empathetic is, like, so often we're caught up and not even in like other people's room but our own everyday problems and like, you know, and things that ultimately are really petty. And then when we think about the vastness of the universe and all the things out there, I think it helps us to look beyond our own circumstances and our own um individual problems and say that like, oh, we're part of a much bigger story and like um yeah. it's not, you know, like, yeah, we have things we could gripe about, but ultimately there's things that they pale in comparison to you know, the bigger scope of everything. Um, And that I think in turn makes you more empathetic to the rest of humanity, the rest of the world. Um, Yeah. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. It kind of almost almost reminds me, what is, is it all-star Superman where Lex gets the powers for a little bit and he realizes, Oh, this is what you see all the time being you. No wonder you're trying to protect us all. No wonder you're such a hero. It's yeah. like, Oh. Okay. I get that. To to see the totality of where we are in time and space, and go. Oh well. Maybe I should be caring about the things back home.
1: Yeah. Oh, Superman is a great lens for um, for that philosophy oh, yes. and everything. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. Well, but but this sounds great though. I I mean I may check out some of the gameplay online just to see because like and also the cover here kind of reminds me of some Jeff Lemire books like descender and trillium mm-hmm. and stuff that are also that kind of like um epic space opera but i, I yeah this great recommendation yeah.
0: here yeah I, I do enjoy the game a lot it's like i said it's not the deepest thing in the world so Sorry. far that i've seen maybe that changes along the way like uh there's only so many companions that are actually worth like hanging out with and stuff like that so i think that's a bit of a downgrade compared to what we got in fallout 4 and a little bit in skyrim but that's okay like, they're doing their own thing here. I am I still haven't explored everything like I have for those games. Like, how many times have I played them over, modded? Uh, too much of my time has been taken away by Bethesda, and they're going to keep doing it to me. But I, I felt like part of the story is figuring out, like, that we're not just alone. There is someone else out there. And like I said, I'm still discovering, like, whether or not they're actually aliens or maybe humans who found some way to get to this. But it seems to me they're aliens. And we've on the show actually had several episodes. Like what would happen if we experienced alien life? Like I've been on one. We had one before I came on here, but you yourself, as far as I'm aware on these airwaves have not been asked. So I want to hear your take on it, Kevin. How would you feel? Should we learn about other intelligent life out there in the cosmos?
1: Oddly enough, I've had this conversation, not just with other geeks, but like even like disability friends and stuff. This is a conversation I've had multiple times. It's fascinating. One answer. Cause I think of it in two minds. Like, yes, there's the fear of the unknown. And you're like, um, all, you know, the immediate thought is like, Oh, would they be here to harm us? Or would they be, um, you know, some kind of threat, but you know, and you ultimately can't know, um, if, you know, we discover life on other planets, like there, you don't know, but yeah, I think it was like a friend asked me one time, like, I do not remember the exact phrasing if it was if like, if an alien came, would you take the risk and go with them? Or like, you know, uh, it was sort of like a red, blue, red pill, blue pill question. Like, yeah. or just leave it. No. And like, I think I did answer, like, I would want to go and see what, you know, I would, like my curiosity would compel me like, yes, there's still that, um, yeah, I mean, it's a huge risk and you don't know, would you come back? What do you, but, but yeah, a part of me would really want to, um, so yeah it's a hard one to answer because i'm like <laughs> I, I it would be fascinating and i obviously my hope would be that they would you know a, another life force would be more advanced but in a good way for humanity and would be there to help and to um and something you know we could learn from them um sort of like in arrival the movie with uh right. amy adams so, you know like i really love that movie and i think i like the more optimistic take there um Obviously okay. there is the possibility of it being like, you know, some big classic invasion type thing. Um, but obviously we wouldn't want that. So yeah, I, I, I know that's kind of still in ambiguously, but, uh, yeah, yeah. I would be fascinated in exploring that. And, you know, I think it would be really cool if we could build relations with this whole other civilization and species and they would be mutually beneficial.
0: Well, you said your answer was so ambiguous, but it's such a multifaceted question. Like, you have to Mm -hmm. consider a lot of things before you say, Well, I just say yes. Well, like, did you consider if these is is an invasion force? Is this a Twilight Zone to serve man kind of situation? Mm -hmm. Or are you going to be in an alien zoo? Or, you know, are they just going to dissect you when you you come back to their planet? Like, you don't know Mm -hmm. that. Well, or could this actually be a race out there that genuinely wants to look after us? I mean, is there such a thing as an unfallen race? In the cosmos, like you get in our uh, space trilogy, C.S. Lewis, that we do see some there, mm-hmm. or are they just as fallen as us and they've had to deal and wrestle with sin in their own way, that but they just advance mm-hmm. faster than us? Like, who knows? And the point being, it's like they're out there. And yeah. if they are, and I think God is a little too creative just to stop with us, that's kind of my personal opinion. Like, I have nothing to prove that with outside of, you know, people are seeing something out there. So, mm-hmm whatever that is. And in fact, in December for our friends out there for Friday night frights, I will be covering the Betty and Barney Hill UFO encounter. So uh, just to get you ready for that, throw that out there. So uh, as far as uh, rating and reviewing goes, like I haven't Mm -hmm. finished the game, but I'm feeling like a high nine right now. Like unless something, you know, either gets worse at the end or gets better, like that's probably where I'm going to stay. So (laughs) enjoying this game. Our next topic, Kevin, of course, is yours, which would be the Midnight Club, which was that last year? It was last October. uh,
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the Midnight Club is from Mike Flanagan and Leah Fong and um, Mike Flanagan, I think I've talked about him before on this show, but he's one of the most prominent horror filmmakers today. He did movies like Oculus, uh, Doctor Sleep, uh, Hush, which is great. And then for the last few years, pretty much every year, he's been releasing uh, either limited series, or in this case, this was meant to be uh, more of an ongoing, uh, but only went one, one season. But um, all these different horror series for Netflix. And so he started with the Haunting of Hill House. Then he did *Haunted of Fly Manor. Uh, then Midnight Mass, which is my favorite I still. love um, Midnight Mass. Love Midnight Mass. Mean, I mean, there's so much to talk about there. Um, but And then The Midnight Club came out last year and i had watched some of it last year and was really enjoying it but for whatever reason just fell off and then uh but then recently since he has one more show coming out actually i think it just dropped i'm going to probably watch it later this week or weekend but the fall of the house of usher uh, Mm -hmm. um on netflix and so that's sort of his last netflix series before he's going over to amazon uh we were talking about this a little before the reporting but the midnight club uh again premiered last year and i went it was like on labor day weekend i just watched the whole series uh, it's 10 episodes and this is uh, so with all of mike flanagan's uh, work there's a real depth to the characters and to the writing and you know it's real. you know it's that kind of falls into that category of what people call like elevated horror where it is more character focused and it's trying to say something and not that there aren't a lot of, a lot of horror classics that don't but you know it's yeah. not your. Um, you know, Saw Three or something like that. Like this is a, <laughs> these are very like these are not slashers or. I um, mean, I really, if anything, I think like, um, his work is the kind of stuff that might bring people into horror that um aren't traditionally um you know viewers or readers of that genre. And this one in particular is a great YA introduction, young adult. Uh, if you want to kind of like, um, dip your feet into kind of a YA horror vibe. And the premise of this series is, it takes place at a private hospice center where these group of terminally ill kids are are there and they all come from different backgrounds and uh, they're kind of, you know, strung together here. And every night at midnight, they gather to tell ghost stories to each other. And the point of view character uh, was going into college right before she got a cancer diagnosis and you know of course upends her life and so she comes in here is introduced to the midnight club and all the while there's this kind of supernatural mystery looming over the facility and it connects itself to a lot of the stories that the characters tell and yeah i it's a series i really enjoy first of all i want to get your perspective because you said you have seen this one as well
0: yes uh I particularly love this series. Yeah. I don't remember all the names of the people. I don't remember all the stories they told. It's been Mm -hmm. that long since I've seen it, but I enjoyed the premise. I enjoyed the aspect of using horror as a way to deal with the realities of their situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a big horror head myself. Love the genre. And as a writer, too, like seeing how different writers made horror their own from the perspective of these characters, even though this is, uh, it was originally based on a a series of novels, right? By John Christopher, Christopher, yes.
1: Christopher Pike,
0: yep. Christopher Pike. I'm thinking of someone else, Then Thank you for correcting Yeah,
1: and and not Christopher Pike from Star Trek, but a different (laughs) guy.
0: Totally different guy. Hasn't been born yet. No, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I I love what they're doing there. Uh, The whole concept of the Midnight Club, like, I was a little iffy when I started the series, but when they Uh first you see them in that little special place they have with the fire going, telling a horror story, it's like, Uh I'm in, sold, let's do this.
1: And also what you really come to appreciate is that each of the stories they tell, they're not just like, Oh, here's a ghost story. Each of them say something about their character. So for instance, like there's a character named Kevin there uh, who is like uh his friends and family view him as like the perfect guy he's like this nice like really charismatic dude and uh it's like sort of has this kind of like golden child personification like thrown at him like he can't make a mistake and that in turn puts a lot of pressure on him so he tells a story about a teenage serial killer that like where like he casts himself as that and obviously it doesn't like doesn't happen but it's a fictional uh thing that it speaks to his character of he wants to prove to people that he is multilayered. obviously not that he like wants to be a killer but uh but the fact that he's kind of like tired of this kind of um personification you know thrown at him and that pressure put on him so that like that's one uh then there's another who he like all yeah, his quote before he tells the story is that he wants to save the world and get the girl and so he like makes up this big like time travel story in sci-fi and uh with like the girl he has a crush on and you know there's all stories like that and then there's one who and it, by far the most intense episode and they put a discretion at the beginning where um it's related. she tells a story that involves suicide and that involves like um her going off um you know like with like these uh kind of like rock roll uh, hipsters and uh, you know hitchhikers, and so in all of them, tell stories that are personal to them. Even though they explore different genres, and that's I think the best part of the show. Because like at first, you're kind of with the other series that Mike Flanagan did. There's an overarching narrative uh, that is the most compelling part. Not that this isn't like I said. There's this, there is the supernatural mystery that's set up from the beginning that the main character in Lanka discovers. Uh, a former resident, alaska center who supposedly cured herself and um and is still mm-hmm. alive. And so that's part of the mystery. and And it is a really interesting part. But again, the individual journeys of these characters and how they learn to grow with each other and explore aspects of themselves, that's by far the most compelling part of the series. And it is so well written, and I really love the character dynamics here. and And as far as spiritual themes, like so this is the really interesting thing about Mike Flanagan is, he is like an outspoken atheist and uh-huh. um and like and has you know like it talks about his upbringing in the catholic church and then when he um secularized but the really interesting about his stuff and you see this especially in midnight mass and in midnight club is he very much explores religious themes and i felt that in both of those cases neither were oh, screw the church, screw Christians, and like that like, yeah. it's very respectful about, like, obviously Midnight Mass tackles, you know, religious zealots that are, like, cult and threat. but on the flip side, there is a wonderful relationship in that series of, like, the main character um, and his ex-girlfriend, who like, he grew up to become an atheist, he became, he was kind of the more rebellious growing up and then is now a Christian. They have this really beautiful, eloquent conversation where they're able to share their views with each other, in a respectful manner. And I really like the way he draws that character. Um, like hers to show that, you know, she's not this like, you know, um judgmental, like um, hypocritical bigot or anything like that. Like she's just this very like genuine person of faith, and he writes her really well. The same thing happens in Midnight Club where there's one character, named Sa- Sandra, who like her faith is a huge part of getting her through um her disease journey and coping with the diagnosis. And then on the flip side, like there's one character who has a lot of angst toward her at the beginning because he's gay and he's been rejected by his mother because of his sexuality. And uh-huh. he in turn blames, you know, people like Sandra for um that. And it starts off that way. And then they end up having this beautiful reconciliation where they come to understand each other and it dissolves any kind of like tropes that I feel like other writers might have gone into, you know, if you know, like they might have like portrayed like her as a villain. And it doesn't do that with any of the characters here. They're all, it, all, every one of these characters are the people who are um, outcasts and thrown into this situation and have to learn how to cope with it and learn from each other. And, you know, that the friendship here is what sustains them. And, you know, as a lifelong disabled person, I appreciate too the conversations about, ableism explored here and just that kind of like unity here. Like for instance, the uh, the character Kevin, um, he goes to prom with his girlfriend one night and he comes back and he's like, yep, they made me prom king and they all told me I was inspirational and stuff like that. And um, I was yeah. like, oh, this mm-hmm. is so like on the nose like this is like <laughs> out of the nose. This is like so accurate here. Um so yeah. I love those conversations. But um but yeah that's the really I what I really love about Mike Flanagan's writing is that he tackles those sort of you know otherwise taboo topics that other people might shy away from and um e- even though he himself is secular he has a lot of respect for um genuine people of faith and uh, is not afraid to tackle those conversations and explore and ask questions and not make it really one-sided at all he really shows multiple perspectives um and i think that's especially apparent in this one in the in midnight mass
0: yeah uh I really appreciate how all of these teenagers feel like screwed up teenagers, uh-huh. but they're not. It's not like they're making fun of them, yeah. or just they're not caricatures. It's like, hey, they are wrestling with some really deep stuff here beyond the fact that they are terminally ill, yep. and they come from very different places. Uh-huh. And seeing we have our Christian, we have our atheists, we have uh-huh. um, uh, uh, our gay man here we have Uh, plenty more characters uh who like and in a with an incompetent writer you would have had oh well you're this therefore you're a bigot or i'm this therefore i'm perfect because uh you're just oppressing me and Uh instead of like hey let's have an actual conversation about this this is where i'm coming from this is where you're coming from i don't hate you you don't hate me we're not going to agree everything Uh between the two of us, but we're going to have a relationship together. Uh And that's something I think the world could really learn a lot from. Like, obviously I have a lot of things that I hold really near and dear to my heart, but if I don't leave room to listen to someone without saying, and chances are, I'm never going to change my point of view, but if I don't Uh listen to them, I'm not really doing a good job of being a, a neighbor and I'm called to love my neighbor as myself. So, uh, I would expect someone to listen to what I have to say with respect. So, why can't I do the same for them?
1: Absolutely. And I mean, I think that alone makes this a series I would highly recommend for Christians and um, just anyone with a particular faith, Writing i of you to watch because exactly that. It, it just opens rooms for conversations. It, it has very well drawn out characters. That, like you said, they're not cliches or stereotypes put on them. These are all very, like, Beautifully flawed people, and they learn from each other, and it's just a, and, it, and it's not just like, oh, this is like a conversation. It's a, a very engr- engrossing narrative, and um, it's excellent filmmaking. And yeah, I just, I really highly recommend. It. I was, glad I went back and watched it all the way through. Uh, but okay. yeah, and, and, yeah. So I don't. And to think of anything else to say. That and yeah. As I mentioned, this one was actually intended to be an ongoing series, and it got canceled. Um, but Nonetheless, I still say go ahead and watch it because it does leave you with a sort of cliffhanger and set up for a potential season two. But it also tells a complete story in this season. I don't think you'll watch it and be like, oh, I like, you know, um, like that that was a waste of time. It's very much you get a full story. But also I read something that Mike Flanagan, once it got canceled, he posted like something on Reddit or something where um, he laid out what they would have done in season two. For people who really want to find out what happened next and because uh, again there's a big tease like at the end of episode ten uh but the main story with these characters I think you get a lot of good resolution uh, but yeah so either way i I think definitely go out and watch it and now I'm really looking forward to um the fall of house of lesster which is the again is I think it's out now so I'll probably watch that this weekend but um but as far as this one i would I give it a high like eight or nine like i It's harder to do like numbers. Like, there were parts where it slowed (laughs) down a little bit, and I'm like, um, and I'm like, uh, I kind of like speed up, but nonetheless, it was a great watch um, as a whole. And again, the acting's phenomenal, the writing is top notch. And um, I still think Midnight Mass is my favorite of the ones he's done, but this one I really liked as well.
0: Yeah, rating systems, I love using them, but at the end of the day, they're so subjective. Like, it's a yeah, and I, yeah. I mean that. Like a numbering, I might change my uh, like
1: tomorrow. So, yeah. no, But suffice it to say, I really enjoyed this one. I would highly recommend.
0: Yeah. What's the difference between a five out of five system, a ten out of ten system, a hundred yeah. out of hundred? Yeah. Like well, yeah. it's it's all personal. And for me, yeah. I I'd probably rate this near where you are. Probably like an eight five, maybe a nine, yeah, yeah, yeah. depending yeah. on how I'm feeling. But yeah, this is well worth it, guys. It is pretty much self contained. Even though there was hope for a second season, like. Mm. Uh, There's plenty to get here. Like, this is for younger viewers, too. Just know there are some heavier themes discussed here, so it depends on the maturity of the the viewer. I highly recommend. Go check it out. Now, next up on our docket, completely different in every way, shape, or form, we have Baki Hanma, Son (laughs) of Ogre, Season 2. And disclaimer, this is so stupid, and I love every second of it. Okay, like... Okay, this conversation can either last a minute, or we get go for fifty minutes after this, depending on where we take it from here. Now, uh, let me ask you, Kevin. Do you have any idea what this is?
1: I don't. I'm very interested, but like I, I think I've said before, I've dipped like my in anime, but I'm not an expert on it. So uh, more regular animation, but uh, nonetheless, I love the cover here. So go ahead, like <laughs> spoil, tell whatever you want here.
0: Oh, how to describe Baki. Okay. So there, it's, it's based off of a manga called Baki the Grappler. There was an anime in the late 90s slash early 2000s, where, which adapted the early parts of the manga. They stopped for a bit. Then Netflix picked it up, and instead of starting from the beginning, it's kind of started where they left off from that right. one from the 90s, uh, early 2000s. So... If you get start with the Netflix stuff, there's going to be some stuff like you're going to go, wait, who are these people? Why do they know each other? Well, that's because they're not going to explain it. But the central premise is that our boy Baki here is a young martial artist and his dad, Yujiro Hanma, you see there at the the very top of that photo is considered to be the world's strongest creature, not the world's strongest man, the world's strongest creature, is in, like, he's beaten every human opponent he's ever come up against. He's beaten a lion and uh, tigers and so much more, an elephant, and, like, all this stuff. It This is a series, this is kind of the perfect definition of turn your brain off and just watch what's in front of you. Yeah. Like, there, not to say there's not anything deeper that's brought up here, but at the end of the day, like, I'm not going to be writing a thesis on Baki Hama anytime soon, you know? That would be pretty impressive if you could, like, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's possible, but it's one of those things it's his journey, his dad actually killed Baki's mother early on to kind of embolden him to be like, oh, I want you to be the one to end up beating me because I have no one that I can fight one to one with. And we finally get, after being teased for episodes, for seasons, that final fight between the two of them and it's that wondrous Baki way of there's stuff thrown at the screen there's random characters giving flashbacks uh to stuff that doesn't matter right now and there's random characters that are being interviewed after the fact oh at that moment i knew this was going to be the fight of the century or blah 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 whatever and in the midst you're also having ridiculous martial arts moves that don't exist in the history of the world because the human body can't do what they do in the show. But that's part of the fun is just to see how it can ridiculously top itself. Like the season the this is kind of a half season. They just dropped with us the half season before this, they found, they found uh, in uh, like the ice or stone or something, a Tyrannosaurus Rex about to kill a caveman, which by the way, even if you're a creationist, doesn't mean you think that they lived together at the same time in the Jurassic Cretaceous period. <laughs> but in this, in the world of Baki, humans and dinosaurs lived together millions of years ago and actually killed one another. And they had the whole fight of like every fighter in the world showed up, who's going to be the biggest, baddest guy to bring out who's who was the biggest, baddest guy all the way back in the day. And you had Baki finally beat him there. And now Baki and his father are fighting. Uh, and just part of it is them, the two of them like actually having dinner together for the first time as father and son and that which goes on to them offending one another and leading into this fight and like who can come out on top like uh, i'm not gonna explain everything that's way too much to go over but yeah it, it's so stupid Every
1: well time. i mean i think it's i think it's important to have that kind of entertainment uh that is just kind of turn your mind off and so ridiculous and it's fun and it's entertaining because it's just yeah i mean i mean you're in seminary right now like i I work yeah. in digital media and um, columnist and writer. And like, if everything we watched and read was like deeply philosophical or we're looking for a yeah, message yeah. anything, our heads would explode. And I just like, and I don't, I think it's good to have that balance and to have something like this where it's just good fun entertainment. I mean, you know, like I love Cobra Kai and I love like a lot of, you know, <laughs> beam of movies and stuff like that. I know I'm not like that. I'm not gonna get any kind of like deep philosophical message from, And that's totally okay. You need stuff that are just like, uh, like, you know, to have that balance and that you can relax to at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Like that's so I'm so grateful for the fact that Joshua lets me do Friday Night Frights, because that means there's at least one thing out of the entire month that I can read one or two books on that has nothing to do with any of my seminary work, which I love doing. Yeah, But I got to escape every now and then, even though some of the books I read for the Friday night fright stuff are scholarly, it's a different type and it's Mm -hmm. so much fun. So uh, we kind of brought it up like at at what point does a story go from ridiculous, but fun to badly written and stupid in your opinion. No, that's that's tough.
1: It's like, that's tough because I think it's like, if there is, if it's an inherently B movie, like, I mean, I'll be like, this is not an insult. This is a plug for my friend Brockton, who, like, I don't know if you know him, but like, well, uh, yeah, like, he is so Brockton specializes in B movies and B comics and stuff like that. Like, when you go into his stories, you know what you're getting in. Like, there, it's intentionally over the top, and he has a movie called <laughs> Reptile coming out, um, which I'm doing a plug for right now um, in oh, October. Yeah. That the trailer just dropped today, um, and a bunch of my friends are in it. But like. Uh, so there's something like that. And then it's, and then you think of something like, I don't know, like an MCU movie or something like that, where it's not meant to be a B movie. It's still meant to be popcorn entertainment, but like you still want it to be well-written and you want it to like, yeah. um, make sense. And so I think there is a distinction there. Like it's, that's, I know that's a like blurred line, but does that make sense where it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm a, I'm okay with stuff where it's meant to be. Ridiculously over the top, and that's the point. And you are going in there for like expecting B movie effects, and it's this own world of its own. Um, and and then something like where if it's a mainstream and it's just like lazy writing, you know, like I think yeah, there yeah. is a distinguishment, it is, it's a distinguish there. So that's more where I find it. So, um, so I mean, looking at the poster for this right here, yeah, I'm expecting this to be <laughs> ridiculous and over the top, and I love it, you know, um. Yeah, okay. so I know that is. I don't know if that quite answers it. It's a hard. there's, a, there's a very a like question. ambiguous line there. But
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to put things in frame of reference to, and to spoil my rating interviewing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, my favorite anime of all time is called Legend of the Galactic Heroes, and I rate that a ten out of ten. It is a wonderful story of humanity going to the stars, but yet still like the cyclical nature of, you know, empires and. Democratic nations and uh, what humanity does to each other, and fighting in war and how that never ends, no matter where you go, I rate that a ten out of ten. I also rate ba- Baki Hanma, uh, uh, well, Baki the grappler, as a whole ten out of ten for very different reasons. Yes. Uh-huh. It, it uh-huh. brings me pleasure in a different way. Yes. Yeah. That point, that I think, after a point, the author realized the ridiculousness of what he was writing uh-huh. and decided to embrace it. Rather than being like, oh, that just happened, or you know, something like that, it's like, no, you have the characters comment on the ridiculousness, but they ain't commenting on it as part of the ridiculousness itself, yeah. While you're watching stupid things that are inhuman, impossible of being done feet wise by regular people on screen, and you're like, well, it's just happening right now, I'm accepting it, uh-huh. Uh-huh. versus something that's like, it's like a that would try to like shallow parody this be be the way to describe that of, oh, well, I'm going to use my technique. I use my technique and I beat you. And that beat a line versus like, you know, something funny. You could have a witty line in that area. I'm not developing dialogue on screen right now, but to, to show your appreciation for what you're doing, like, shoot, I love talking about the thing I'm parodying right now. Or I love the thing that I'm actually writing right now. Uh-huh, and I get a uh-huh. great sense of love and care from something that, it's not scholarly, not one bit. Yeah, but it's still fun. So I think that's to me. It's like who is taking care of the story makes mm-hmm. something good, like as opposed mm-hmm. to something like The Room. Like it, The Room is good not because Tony Wiseau or how you say his last name. Tommy Wiseau, like, yeah, Tommy, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Tommy Wiseau uh, is a competent film director. It's because he thinks he is. That's The yes, it's the greatest thing that makes that film so iconic
1: because he thought he was mil- making a Scorsese ma- masterpiece. Um, when he went to that, and you know, it's the like Citizen Kane of bad movies, but in, in, in turn, that has become something so monumental. Um, so that's a whole nother thing there, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah,
0: I think it's how you. It's how you care about it as a writer uh-huh. versus how like you think you're an intellectual. That's what uh-huh. keeps something from being ridiculous, but fun to badly written and stupid. Like, yeah, it, the, the room is badly written and stupid, but because of the circumstances behind it, it becomes ridiculous, but fun. Baki Bakihama yeah. is written. It's not badly written, but it, it's written in a way that like you wouldn't expect from a story, but that makes it ridiculous, but fun. So that's why I'm that there. Uh, you have anything you just want to add before we go to our next question? No, is, I think, it, yeah, it's very much a specific universe,
1: and you're going to look at it differently and rate differently than you would something that is more scholarly or philosophical or, you know, art house or whatever.
0: Well, to go to a scholarly question about Baki, one of the themes in this show is the father-son relationship between sure. Baki and Yujiro. And you have this absolute monster of a man who murdered the guy's br- mother in front of him and yet he desires a relationship with him. Like who is this man that's been out of my life that is the strongest per- a creature on this planet that he has no one else he can relate to. And he wants me to be that person to relate to him. That, that complicated feeling of, I don't like how this happened, but at the same time, he's still a man. He's still a person. And there's almost, it's not a quite a full redemption arc mm-hmm. for Yujiro along the way, but it, he gets more humanized as time goes on. He's not just some card carrying villain who just kills people for the sake of it. Like he actually protects and defends uh, people who are in the midst of war and like stops refugees from being slaughtered. Uh, Not because he cares about them, but because he doesn't like people bullying other people. Mm. And it's that weird kind of blue and orange morality that he has. So like my question to you, Kevin, like what are the limits of writing a character going through redemption? Like, well, at what point do we go? I don't buy it. That's interesting. Cause like,
1: well, oddly enough, this kind of like uh, provides a segue into my final topic here. I'll get to in a sec, cause there is oh, a yeah. be um son and parent relationship. Um, but uh, that's a good question. Like, cause you all uh, you don't want it to become cliche. If you're trying to write a redemption of something like that, where there is clear offense and there's clear um baggage and you know, horror there, you want to make the redemption natural. And so I think it has to be treated very carefully, and you have to really look at it from multiple layers. Um, that is interesting you brought up. Phil, so like, see, you did bring up really a couple philosophical things from um, this that you said it was just <laughs> going to be like you know totally ridiculous, but now you're stopping me with a really good question here. But uh, but I, yeah. yeah, I just think like you do if you're writing something like that in fiction, you have to really look at both sides and like you said, try to humanize um, even a horrible character and look at okay does the other person still see the humanity in them and want to have their redemption and so it's never going to be the same in any um one relationship it's you have to look at it individually and look at the circumstances and look at what connects them together and it's all the harder when it's like a you know um father son or any kind of parent child um relationship there you know yeah yeah so it's i mean like there, i mean i I think the the most uh i mean it doesn't end up being redemptive well does in a way but i'm thinking the best example of this is zuko and fire lord Mm. and last Airbender because in that one yeah they don't like zuko does not you know um he realizes like he spent so much time trying to please his father and gain his father's love when all along he realizes no his father is a monster and his true father figure is Iroh. And instead, he finds redemption there and he finds redemption of himself. And so it's kind of a flip there, but that is one of the best, just beautifully drawn out um, relationship that plays out over three seasons. And you're constantly thinking, oh, is he going to, you know, turn away? Is he gonna become his father's successor? Like, it's his back and forth. And it's such a well um, uh, drawn eye. If you've never seen last Airbender, I cannot recommend it enough for, uh, just a for
0: that show. message below yeah yeah we just recorded our uh season two overview episode mm. uh and season one dropped not too long ago i mm-hmm. love that series now that those episodes okay. i was supposed to be on i invited myself just because i want to talk about this show i love avatar okay so but yeah oh yeah but and zuko is a great example of a redemptive uh mm-hmm. arc uh, in a series i, I think as far as a black and white interpretation of redemption of, you know, someone coming to the realization, I'm a terrible person. I need to turn things around and even get the Christian context of, you know, God, forgive me for what I've done. Take me. I'm yours. Like I, Yuji Ohana is never going to do that for the series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah Obviously it, this is a Japanese production. Uh, I quoted all the time. It's like less than 2% of the population are Christian. That's not going to be the context you're going to get for redemption. But as far as this story is concerned there he, has earned redemption to an extent in his own way of this is his way of seeking reconciliation with his son. It's like the only way they can understand each other in the way this world works is through fighting one another because he himself is like the strongest creature on earth. Like that's no one can beat him. He has no one on his level. It's not like he's some brute. Like he's actually in very intelligent. He's in his own way, very caring. But at the same time, like he's plucked people's eyes out after he's beaten them. He's killed people that didn't deserve it. And I, I, including Baki's own mother. So it's the sense of he does want a relationship. So that's what makes something good. It's like one desiring relationship with his son. Yeah, sure. A- every son wants that from his father. Every father should want that from their son. And he gets it at the end of the series in its own Baki way. So I right. think the limits for this are. did you watch steven universe no i need to i know it's
1: great but like okay
0: yeah to not spoil things for you there's a segment that some people take a lot of offense as uh, on i'm not one of them and they say there are these kind of overlord figures in steven universe that have done a lot of harm not only to the earth but to their own people and yet steven kind of forgives them at the end it's like i I agree he should but they kind of argue it's done too easily like they haven't shown us that they have earned that redemption, but well, at the end of the day, no one's earned redemption. Yeah. So that's a very human way of looking at things. Uh It's a very, you hurt me. Therefore you're going to have to work your way back into my good graces versus Uh what we're actually shown. Uh So I think it depends on how you're writing it. And I I think in that particular Steven universe situation, it's done well enough. It's not perfect. It's done well enough. As far as Baki is concerned, it's actually done pretty well too but we're also going on pretty long and I can already hear Joshua grinding his teeth. So, uh, Kevin, uh, as I said, this is a 10 out of 10 for me. This is a dumb series. It's a stupid series. I love every single second of it. Go watch Baki from the beginning, the 90s, uh, 2000s anime, and then watch the Netflix stuff and then read the manga after that because they're going to have to adapt that too. So, Kevin, take us away for our next topic, which is still just a geek, an annotated memoir from Will Wheaton.
1: Okay, and yes, for Josh's sake, I will try to keep this brief, but I, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not too much editing. Uh, but uh, but we'll see. But uh, but yeah, I know this is a little bit uh, different from what we usually talk about. It's, you know, not a comic or show or movie, but uh, this is a memoir by Will Wheaton, who you know you may know from Star Trek: The as Wesley Cr- Crusher, um, Stand by Me, one of my all time favorite movies, uh, and then. Also he plays an evil version of himself on Big Bang Theory. So he's a long time recognizable figure in pop culture. But uh, with this book, so in the early 2000s, he published a book called Just a Geek. And you can see like on this cover, he's holding a copy of that. And this was written like uh, years after he left Star Trek and uh, he was emerging as a writer and he published this memoir. What this book is called Still Just a Geek uh, was released last year. And it is, he uses the original text of Jessica and does a thorough uh, annotation of it. And so, um, so he has the text there and he makes notes throughout of it, throughout it, uh, because he's not only writing about what's changed in his personal life since the time of was written, he's talking about how his entire perspective has changed on a number of things. And so a lot of it is critiquing his own writing and he's like, God, that joke is Ooh. terrible. Or this is like cringy and offensive and I hate it. Or um, and there are other layers to it of one of the biggest themes of this book and why I said oh this is kind of a segue um, this this book is a lot about his relationship with his parents um, which unfortunately is not good at all he grew, grew up in a um, very emotionally and physically abusive um, household and um, it was a generational thing and he had a number of unresolved and untreated mental health struggles that um, his parents really never helped him address and so. He is very unapologetically honest about that in this book. And um, I mean, he opens with saying, like, I don't have a relationship with my parents anymore. Unfortunately, he um, tried to mend things and, you know, they weren't receptive. And, um, yeah, you know, this is all, you know, all his perspective here. But he's very honest and forthcoming about um, that aspect of his life and how it. Uh, but the biggest thing is that he never really wanted to be a famous actor. Uh, he was kind of like forced into that by his parents. And. Yeah, it took him a long time to realize that he wanted to be a writer. And so he writes about that and a lot about um, his, the identity crisis he went through. And um, for a long time, like he was punishing himself for leaving Star Trek. And then, re- you know, it took him years to realize that that was actually the right move because as much as he loved to like his Star Trek family on the show and being a part of it, again, he didn't want to be um, a rich and famous actor. He wanted to do other things and he wanted And it took him a long time for him to realize his passion for writing and all these other things. So it's a very, it's actually, I mean, even you look at the cover of this book and you think, oh, this is going to be another cool like pop culture memoir, be some fun stuff in here. And there is a lot of fun stuff. I mean, he has essays on gaming and, um, you know, comics and geek culture uh, that are really fun, but it's also a very uh, stimulating and really heavy read at times because it does uh, address mental health and suicide and, all these you know really heavy topics that um i think he don't want going in i think he wanted to explore not just for his own catharsis but to help others who may be in that situation whether it's in you know people in a toxic relationship or people who don't really know who they are and you know or or they struggle with anxiety and depression and so he puts all of that on the table and um and yeah and and like i said the way it's uh, written is so you have the text is just a the geek, the geek there and all the annotated notes are throughout the book. So if you're reading it in print, um, you just have the notes there on each page. So it's a lot because you'll like read a passage and then there'll be a little um, icon there directing you to an annotated note. Then you go and read that and then you go back to the regular text. And so it can be like that's why it's a good book to like spend a good week with or, um, you know, take your time because you really want to absorb everything. And then there's also additional essays that weren't in the original text added um, in the last like 100, 200 pages, whatever. And so it was, a, I mean, this is one uh, like Midnight Club that opens up a lot of, you know, conversations and topics, both spiritually, mentally, emotionally, that are really fascinating. It helps you understand someone like, again, a guy who, I think my first introduction to was. I don't know if you remember the series Falling Skies. It was I think mm-hmm. on, yeah, yeah. He hosted the after show to that, and that was like before I watched Star Trek. When I was watching that show, and so like I was first introduced him through that, and so then like Big Bang Theory, and then Star Trek, and everything else. And so like again, I just knew him as this like cool pop culture guy, and and he has established you know a life for himself now that where like um, he loves his family and um, he's in a really good place now, but it was a long journey to get there. And so this is a really epic journey, you know, uh, reading this book and, you know, seeing the ins and outs of his career, but all, but in his personal life and how those coalesced. And so, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I definitely recommend, uh, you know, you, you don't even have to be um, really immersed in any of his properties. Like if you, you don't even have to be a, a Star Trek fan or anything like that to um, get an idea he lays out any information that you need, um, but it, but it is, if you're a fan of his work in general, I highly recommend it. And I'm really excited to see what he wa- what he's gonna do next because he has written some fiction and um, comics. And so this is, I think going would be the most personal thing he'll ever do. Um, I could be wrong if he does something uh, again later, but this is a really powerful book to explore. And I, as someone who reads a lot of memoirs, this is one that I would put pretty high up there.
0: Okay. Yeah. When you describe this book, the thing that really came to me was that whole he's writing over what he wrote before. Yeah. I love that so much. I think maybe this with anyone creative is that sense of I've released something out Mm -hmm. into the ether. People can see it and all you can see are the things you missed or that you should have added in. Mm -hmm. And I am there completely like, I should have said this. Oh, now that I'm older, well, I should have worded it like this. Uh-huh. It's like, I, I wish I could just edit everyone's book at the same time. So things would change. It's like, I forgot a comma there. I, I spelled this word wrong. I used the wrong there. And it's infuriating because you think, well, now there's nothing I can do about it, but you just have to accept reality sometimes. And that, that's one of the things he did uh, from what you're telling me about mm-hmm. the book is mm-hmm. that, yeah mm-hmm. this is who i was then this is mm-hmm. what i was wrestling with then but now i can look back at this when i'm older and edit this book and yeah the idea that you can do to something that to something you've already published as someone who's published several books that sounds amazing and will wheaton's story himself i haven't followed everything that he's done mm-hmm. uh, obviously i've seen him on star trek i've seen him stand by me uh-huh. uh he was on the guild if i remember correctly yep. uh-huh. yeah yeah um and the big bang theory episodes that he's been on. I've seen a couple of those. Yeah. But yeah, to actually get the story behind the man where he was and the stories you're telling me, this sounds like a really great and fun book. Yeah. So yeah. You have anything you want to add to that?
1: No, I just say like, as a writer as well, it's so hard to look back at stuff you've written, like much like, I mean, mm-hmm. for me, like, I mean, I've been writing my column press to today for a little over six years and I cringe at like Early ones, I'm like, where it's not even so much the like, content itself, but just like, oh, that could have been worded so much better. But here, it's like not only he's looking at the writing style, but all the things where you know he's just changed so much, and you know the jo- even like jokes he made that he's like, ah, oh, that is so cringy, you know. And so it's a brave feat to be able to look that in depth and that retrospectively at something yeah. you've written and put out in the world, and to you know, confront it and now give your own perspective, you know, 20 years later, that is really bold. And, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know that I would be brave enough to do that. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, as far as writing go for this, how do you feel? Where do you think it's at for you?
1: I would put it really high. I mean, it, like maybe nine, five, something. And I mean, like, um, I mean, there's parts where it gets like, feel like, okay, I feel like I already read this, but, um, but it's, I mean, It is so it's very eloquent and it is so just honest and raw. And I really love that about it. And that uh, again, he's not writing for any so much like validation as he is to, uh, you know, get this story out and help others who may be struggling. And maybe it was about the exact same scenario, just to be struggling with identity and mental health struggles and, you know, um, trying to provide hope for people out there. I really appreciate that genuineness and having seen him in interviews since the book came out. Yeah. I just really appreciate his character. It's, he's one. I would love to meet at a con one day and get, get my copy signed.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. This has been an extremely fun episode. Like Kevin and I get on, we just have fun. Uh, just Great. talking about the stuff we love. I enjoy doing it with them. Uh, which of these topics, Kevin, do you think would be your top recommendation
1: it's, fine, it's a, I think I'll leave it at the Well Eaten book, but Midnight Club is very... I mean, both of those I had recommend, you know, I mean, because um, you, you got a book and a TV show recommendation, two very different, but also hopefully that will inspire conversation and that you'll come away with something.
0: That's a good one. I, I want to recommend like all four of these, but... <laughs> I don't know if I can, in good faith, justify someone watch Baki as their first anime. So I'm going to say no to that one. Uh, I think you need to ease yourself in before you start getting into the ridiculousness that is Baki. Uh, Starfield, I'm not sure if I can recommend totally yet because I haven't finished the game. I do enjoy it. I think I'll go with Midnight Club. That was a really good one. I enjoyed the discussion we had there for that. So yeah, if you had the chance, you could boot up Netflix, watch the Midnight Club, and also watch Midnight Mass, which I also would say is my favorite. That he's done Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, that that burning scene on the boat in the middle of the ocean alone is worth the price of admission. Yeah, uh, along the way we should definitely do an episode on Midnight Mass. I'd be I would be down with that. Yeah, yeah. All right. So listeners, what is your favorite? Out of the things that we recommended that you guys watch and What's News today. Uh, as far as you guys, listeners, uh, please just check us out. You can see this on YouTube. We have this on the podcast as well. If you have the chance, just check us out on Patreon. Uh, just send a couple bucks our way just to help keep the lights on here, get things working and flowing. Uh, even increase our chances of going to cons as Systematic Ecology to reach out to people. We want to meet you out in the wild of the con field, so just let us know what, what where do you want us to show up to we'd be more than happy to do that but remember we are all a chosen people a geekdom of priests